if you can focus and execute from ages of age of 20 to 30 on finding a problem, reading, getting mentors, doing, I feel like all the things I've been doing 30 to 40, I, I would set myself up for a life that I don't even know is, is possible or as I could even fathom. Hey, welcome to Building Bigfoot, the podcast about growing yourself and growing your business profitably. I'm really excited here. I'm introducing Brad Redding. So Brad is, uh, he's got an amazing company called uh, Elevar, and it's really about conversion tracking. Uh, it's server-side conversion tracking. I know he's working with a lot of e-com companies through, um, uh, you know, all the different, uh, uh, you know, tool suites that you would imagine that you need, and uh, really making sure that you're getting those high-performance campaigns and getting your, uh, your return on ad spend that you're looking for. Uh, Brad is also a really great guy. I've uh, hung out with him a couple times, and I every time I, I, I do hang out with you, Brad, I I immediately think I want to spend more time with this guy. <laughs> you're a very very fun person, but you're also very. We share some of the core, same core values. We share health. Uh, you seem like you really do invest a lot of time in your family as well, yeah. and that's very cool. So, uh, without further ado, Brad, would you be able to quickly introduce yourself, and then we can dive into your backstory. Yeah, yeah, it's funny being the opposite end of these pods, uh, where I'm, I'm not the interviewer, I'm the interviewee. So I'll, I'll keep the backstory. So I'm in, like Jonathan said, uh, in the SaaS world, have a SaaS business focused. We serve e-commerce brands, so think your direct to consumer brands. This is my second second SaaS business. In between the two, uh, I was in the agency world, and I said I'd never do a, a startup again. But that lasted four years, 364 days, I think, and then. Uh, made made the jump back into uh, into the startup world, and yeah, I mean, in terms of personal stuff, um, I have two young boys, three and four year old boys, uh, amazing wife, family, etc. And we we're very we live in Charleston, South Carolina, so we are an opposite end of the of the world or the continent from uh, from where you are, but very much in the outdoor activities. We are super active, very health conscious. Uh, doesn't mean we don't have fun; we have fun too, but. We uh, certainly prioritize health and wellness, and make sure that that you know is a big part of our family. So that's the that's the thirty thousand foot view on on me. Yeah, and uh, you recently did a pretty uh, significant competition, a health competition. Uh, you know, outside of business, your business yep. is also a, a Fink, uh, Inc. Five Thousand, right? Yeah, two years straight. Yep, two years on Inc. Amazing. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, High Rocks. And you're serving some. High Rocks is the is the fitness competition that my wife and I do and some friends we do together. So we travel around and it's pretty intense. Yeah, that is, that is pretty intense. I've seen you, like you're very fit, you're very strong. And, um, how did you get into that? Our friend circle. I mean, that that's honestly the, we've, it was funny when COVID COVID happened and we couldn't go to any gym and we actually, we had recently moved a new house, so we didn't really have any equipment in our house either. I think we had one kettlebell and something else. So I had the walker who's my oldest. I would weird. I was like holding on to him, doing like push presses with him, holding on doing squats. And it was, it was a shock to us because as a first time since I was probably 15 or 16 that I hadn't been to a gym in more than a week. Like literally I've never gone more than a week in my life. Uh, going to a gym, exercising. We could obviously run and do things like that outside. But if you remember like really early COVID, it was like, don't leave your house, don't leave, don't do anywhere. Uh, so that's that's just a part of our our day-to-day and our, our lives. And 
we got into high rocks through a few friends who started doing it. And <clears throat> for me, since I've very like in the sports, still play basketball, still do a lot of just sporting events where you're having to move and be athletic. But I, I had start to get, I was getting a little bit old of the, all right, let me go to gold's gym up the street and go think of my own workout and just do like more weightlifting. And I never really got into CrossFit and high rocks was a little bit of that mix of, okay, it, you need your endurance training. So you need to be able to run and run fast or for longer distances compromised where you're doing more, maybe CrossFit like activities, but just functional, functional activities. It was a competition. I'm super competitive. Reddings are competitive. That's in one of our like family brands is that is one, one quote I'll say with the boys is like, we're competitive. Like we're at Reddings are athletes. Reddings are competitive. So I think that all together and just the community part of being able to train. So it's, you know, training three, four or five months for an event. And then we travel and go to the event, we do it. And then we, you know, just have fun after and can come back and do it all over again. So fun fact, I just learned this recently. You see, Reddings are, are competitive. Um, the ing on Redding, ing means son of, and it's, it's uh, Saxon. And so my name's obviously Whiting, and Ing yeah. is the same thing. So, so we obviously have some Saxon heritage yeah. uh, that yeah. we both have that must go back like a couple thousand years or a thousand years or something. Interesting. Reminds me of, uh, what's that? What's the Netflix series where there's the Sac, is it Empire? Uh, I don't know. There's one, there's some Netflix series that's a historical, it's a historical series and Saxons were, were I think, part of it. Is that with Uhtred? Yeah, 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 yeah. Last yeah. Kingdom. Yes. Uh, that, that show is awesome. I love that. That, that is super uh, fascinating and, and just tons of fun to watch. It's, I, you, uh, my favorite movies are like Braveheart, Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> so can, I, I love those. Yeah, those are great. Um, so uh, go, stepping back uh, here for a bit, um, you, you mentioned briefly the high level. So, uh, so you had, so you were, an entrepreneur, then you had an agency, and then um, or you're you're a startup entrepreneur. Then you had an agency, then you were a startup entrepreneur again. Yeah. How did that all start? What got you into business originally? Were you always entrepreneurial? Is that something that developed um, throughout your career? Yeah, so it's I would say partially entrepreneurial when I was younger, and and I would I would do various things. I'd go into specifics. No one was going to care about the things I was doing when I was thirteen or fifteen, sixteen. But early early twenties, I. A few of my friends, they had started software and started their own business. And I, I think looking at them, it was like, holy cow, this they're doing it. Why can't I do it? And that was really just the spark that led me down the path of I, a little bit of corny, but I actually did have a dream in the middle of the night. I had a dream about a business. I woke up in the middle of a dream, got a notebook and started writing down a bunch of notes. And if you've ever done that before with dreams, you wake up next morning and you read your notes from like what you're dreaming about. It's really weird because you're like, what, like, how does, what, how, how did you even have those thoughts? Like, cause I, everyone who can remember dreams, it's just like, you wake up and like, man, I had a really weird dream. Like, where, how did all those little connections come together? So that, that, I think that was again, another spark for me to just let, lead me down the path of, I'm just going to try it. It was, you know, very naive. I didn't go to business school. I was self self-teaching myself how to build things, uh, program, and just learned a lot of hard lessons. But also I learned a lot of lessons of what it takes in, at that point, trying to build something that people outside your network will pay for. And 
from there was my, I look at as my NBA and in, in entrepreneurship, it's okay. If, what, what are some of the big lessons I can extract from just trying to build something, spend all my money, you know, waste a bunch of money, you know, spend four years doing it. When I look back on that, it's like, what were the big learning lessons if I were to go about doing this again? Uh, so that to me is like the first four or five years getting into it, it was mo- being motivated by my network. So who was around me, they were building a business that ended up being pretty successful with that and having that spark of, okay, if I can do it, then getting started. And it's just JFDIing. It's just, just doing it. Like just, just take one brick at a time, just go forward each step without worrying too much. I don't I even know what an exit was at that point. I literally had, I just want to build a business and see if I can prove myself I could, I could do it and make it. And then obviously it evolves. It's evolved since then, but that was the, those are the early years and how I got started. What were like, what would be some of the lessons that you learned in the early stage that, um, that you sort of carry with you today? Two, number one, need to have a plan to make money. It's not a, if they build it, they will come. Number two, need to have a brand. So need, need to have a brand that will support the growth of the business. Double tap on the, the financial side. The first version of Elevar, so our beta version of the product, we never did anything free. It was pay $50. I wanted to see if someone outside our network would come to Elevar and choose to pay $50 to try the beta. And then it was trying to, okay, how can we get someone to pay second month, a third month, a fourth month? So, and then the branding side, that's where a good friend of mine who had an agency here, another agency here in Charleston, where just, he was the first person that sat down just to go through all of our click a button. And they were a branding agency, a branding design agency. So it was a, it was a, a who, not how, like not how am I going to create the brand? It's a who's going to create the brand without, without even knowing that, that Dan Sullivan had that book. I think it was Dan Sullivan, the who, not how, but it was, okay, you guys, I Brand need need that need that problem solved, and they did they crushed it. Did an amazing job. Yeah. So that's that was the two. Those are like my two big takeaways in the early days. Um, they did they did crush it. You've got an amazing brand. I love your brand. The two things is number one is you have to be able to um, not just build it, but you need to build something that is going to basically get you customers, and yeah. then you need to have a brand that's bigger than really sounds like the original starting point so that so that as you grow it can grow into that brand or that brand can develop yep. into something much bigger. Yeah. What so then what what kind of happened then? So after your first um initial success with business you realize I can do this. This is something I can do. Where do you go from there? In in Elevar or just just in general? Just in general. So before you started Elevar, like where did or did you start Elevar from day 1? No, so Elevar is about six years old, but the the concept of the money and branding, I didn't really, I didn't really know that or take that away until I was sitting down with the concept of it was Insights Engine, and then we rebranded Elevar, or it wasn't even rebrand; it was like pre. We weren't even a legit business, but it was like okay, this business is going to be Insights Engine. But that, that is when I sat down to look like, okay, how can I retrospect on the first time I did it where you know, all the normal stories of draining 401ks and doing all that and working 16, 17 hours a day because you're doing two jobs to try to keep money coming in while you're not making any money in the startup. But how, what am I going to apply to this next at bat to increase the chances, the likelihood of success where success is 
I can start to make money. I can pay myself uh, a real salary. I can start to build a team. Uh, so that those are the early lessons from there, from the last six years, five or six years with Elevar. And we're in the same mastermind together. So a lot of I've learned from from being in Dan uh, Dan's group is you you always need to look at yourself. So if you want to be this much in revenue or have this big of a team or have this impact on your industry or have this aura with your customers, whatever it might be, is you need you need to develop that skill to look ahead and live in the future and really start to dissect, okay, what are the traits of that person? What what needs to be true of them and like today in order to get there? So that for me has been the last few years as constantly looking at how do I consistently change the way I approach my days, my weeks, my months, my attitude, and how do I live? Not even just from what Dan, like I think I've always naturally done this is how do I live in the future? So you just, you like pull yourself into the future. So that's, I think that's a big focus that anyone can take when you're, when you're trying to grow that business, build it. It doesn't matter if you're trying to go from zero to one or 10 to a hundred, the same, I think that same philosophy is going to apply. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. So, so how do you pull yourself into the future? Ironically, I just say, I'll say it like if something as simple as like, Oh, what's your revenue? And it'll be where I think we should be in three months or six months from now. Like, Oh, we're, you know, 10 million. We're not, (laughs) we're not 10 million, but I, I do actually start to, I'll share that even though it might be quote unquote fudging, like fudging the numbers a little bit in a lot of times it's in my head as well. So that's, that's like the most basic example of, yeah, if someone's having a conversation you're like, Oh, where are you? It's like, Oh, we're here. Uh, not really, but you are. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you're, you're essentially projecting or, or stating where you are going to be so that it becomes and starts to feel so real yeah. that it just becomes a natural consequence that you're going to end up there. Yeah, exactly. And, and then by the time you're there, you're projecting another number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're always, you're always living in the future and then bringing it back into now. Yeah. So, so then you're putting yeah. that framework of like, what has to be true yeah. to then get there. Same thing with health. So it's what's your, what, what's your max mile? Like how fast can you run a max mile? I don't know, six and a half minutes. I, I probably won't go do that today, but I'm. I need to speak that into a, an existence. Yes, yes, that makes total sense. I do a lot of uh, obviously cycling and um, other kind of fitness stuff, and so yeah, that that makes total sense. I would always train yeah. based on what's my best one minute power. Yeah, and then. I just was okay. Now, how do I how do I link those one minutes together so that eventually that becomes the twenty minute power or the forty minute power? Yeah, that yeah. I can sustain. Writing it down is another big one too. So writing it down in the five minute journal, which is right, sitting right in front of me, as an, another I don't want habit that I picked up three four ish years ago. I don't write it in every single day, but I write it in it consistently enough where. There's a part of it where it'll ask, like, it's a daily affirmations of describing who you are. The way I've used it is it's been typically it's one business. So I am, I've built this business. And the other part is, is a family, like a family. I'm and a great husband, great father to my boys, et cetera. But it's so, it's so interesting when you go back and you just flip through the pages of three, four, three, four, two years, like 
even last year, I'm such a different person. But if you go back three to four years, it's crazy that who I wanted to be then, like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a, I was really aiming low. Like I'm way past, way past that part. So writing down is another, I think for me, I found it very helpful because it, it was a little bit woo woo for me initially of like, ah, do I, does this really work? Like, should I do it? I just, I just kept doing it. And, and, uh, yeah, I think looking back, I'm glad, glad that I kept that habit. That's really cool. I, uh, I've been using, I'm not using the five minute journal. I'm using this one called yearly, um, that, uh, a guy I know, Sam, uh, McLaughlin created and mm-hmm. it's, it's really cool. Cause it essentially does the same thing. You set out like, what do you want to do for your yearly goal? Yep. And then what are those, those non-negotiable habits that you're going to yep. do every single week, uh, that are going to get you there. And then they have sort of like a reflection process within it. And, yep. um, I'm finding it really helpful. I, I never used the five minute journal you know, on a, on a regular basis before, um, yeah. I wasn't ever very consistent with it. And whereas now I'm getting a lot more consistent, I'm seeing the benefits of it right away. And yeah. it, it sort of helps to clarify, like what's really the most important thing this week, even yeah. as we go. Um, yeah. so, so I wanted to ask you, you know, I really do. I, I think the, the branding of Elvar, uh, I like the name. I think it's a great name. Um, it's, it's very, it's very good. So, so how do you in your team um, manage that? So you've got your podcast, you've got your uh, LinkedIn profile, you've, you know, you're obviously yep. out there on your website. Um, how do you ensure that the quality of your brand is sustained through all of the different things that you're doing? That's a great question. I, I would say, in one hand, it's because we we don't have a giant marketing team, so there's there's not as much of that need to have very rigid playbooks and processes and ensuring that everyone's following that. But I, we've taken a few steps through the years of, we went through the character, the character diamond from, I think Ryan Dice, it might be public too, but it was one of the first trainings that from SAS Academy that I learned. So we went through that process. And even before that, we developed a character for Elevar. So it was just, what's the personality? Who is Elevar? What's, uh, what are there, what, what's all of our quirks? What's their North star? Like all these different characteristics to try to build a voice. So we tried, or we did, we didn't try. We did build just sample voice paragraphs of what would all of our say in this situation or how would we respond in this situation? So it was talk tracks, not, not that we had to follow, but it was more of the inspiration. And we tried to tie all of our to a movie character to the personality of all of our tied to a movie character to, again, just give people a non-structured, like read this playbook and determine how Elevar is. It was a, okay, if you are familiar with this movie, then and you're, you're a character, then just use that as your, as your guiding principle. Today, we, we do have a flywheel, so that prototypical flywheel of sharing the best how-to content, which has been Elevar since day one, the best how to, how, how to content in our industry. So it's very educational, very inspirational. And those are, I would say the core pillars is be educational, be inspirational, be empathetic. So maybe three pillars. Um, and we just try to carry that through. So it's more about just giving value, telling everyone everything that we learn. And uh, just I think, unfortunately, chips fall into place. We have a designer, so we... Do everything when it, t- it comes up. She'll if she sees a blog post or something that goes live, or the imagery doesn't quite match up. She's great about just popping in, just changing it. So there's little small things like that without having to give direction. But I think it's more about the voice. To me, the voice 
the voice and customer, the voice of the brand, but also your customer success voice is, is a big part of building your brand. To put it another way, yeah. your customer support and customer success, they actually, they drive more of your brand than marketing. Yes. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, for your brand, for, for, um, did you, did you, did you select the customer first? Or did you select the, um, uh, like, like how, what was your approach there? Did, did you, did you say, okay, this is who we're going to go after? Or did you say, this is how we're going to, our voice is going to be. And then the voice has attracted the customer. Like, did you know who was going to end up um, being your target audience? Yeah. Cu- customer first. So we, we built our, built our ICPs first, tried to understand, okay, what, what resonates with them? What type of language, what do they read? What do they watch? And then develop the personality around that with with our own flair, but certainly customer first, identifying who our ICPs are. Okay, yeah, so that that makes a lot of sense. And then um, as you've gone along and you've solved this problem, you know, server side trafficking. Who knew it was going to be such a big deal? Um, but it is a very big deal, right? Yeah. Um, what? So so iOS fourteen point five comes out uh, about two years ago now. And, you know, the game of tracking changes, you got Google GA4 coming out, like just released uh, a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago. And yep. uh, so this is a big update. How have you been able to have your finger on the pulse of, of what's happening and uh, prepare for it? Yeah, great, great question. We've done a really good job on our history of staying very close with our customers. So talking to them, listening to their pain points but also listening to their wallets so what are people willing what are what do people pay us for what do we do that causes them to refer other people to us and use that as our okay because we actually started out as an analytics so we would ingest analytics and do automated data analysis without getting the, the backstory of how we had pivoted is that led us down the road of tracking accuracy and people kept paying us more and more for, okay, more, more tracking accuracy. And they re- refer people to us and they're, that's what they're coming to us for. And then we said, okay, well, maybe we don't really need this because no one's paying us for this. No one's referring uh, other customers for this. So that, I think, to extract out the very specific of, of how Elevar stays on top of tracking updates and what, what uh, blogs or events we go to to try to stay ahead. At the end of the day, it just comes down to listening to customers, communicating with them, not not just an advisory board, but everyone pulling out support tickets. So what, what type of issues are coming in through support? Understanding demos. What are people saying in, in their uh, discovery calls or demos or booking forms? How did they hear about us having that in their sign up so we can really understand why people are coming to us? What's the number one goal? So we, in our sign up, we've had this for, I think, three-ish years now. Everyone who signs up for Elevar, we have an open free form field that says, what's your number one goal that you're trying to complete with Elevar today? So we can extract all that out and create a visual of, okay, well, what are people coming to us for? What's changed this year compared to last year, these last six months? So at the end of the day, it's all voice of customer uh, data, and that's what dr- helps us drive the product. Wow, that's a great, that's a great tip. I'm going to uh, add that uh, form field to ours um, because you know we get a lot of that from, I'd say, the, the calls that we have with uh, people in trial. But then... It would be great to know, you know, was that outcome because of the call? 
or was what was the original outcome that they had when they were first looking into us or maybe what was their friend talking about that caused them to sign up um that's very very interesting um the you know it's it's really cool to see like so you've you've done a great job solving this problem obviously like you've got um, 99.9% accuracy, which is, I, I think, pretty commendable considering um, the challenges with tracking that have, have happened and how important that is. So if you're running any kind of advertising, um, the promise of the internet is that you can track your ROI. And then the internet has been moving away from that, essentially. And the large players, the big players are making it harder and harder to track ROI. And we can talk about why that is, but some of it is simply because, you know, they're trying to increase uh, user privacy. Some of it is because they're, um, you know, they're competitors with one another. And and so they're, you know, Apple would like to make it a little bit tougher for Facebook. Um, And, you know, Google would like to be able to really own the customer cohort, and that makes sense, right? Like if you're if you're in this position and you think, okay, we can do something disruptive, maybe beneficial to others, but at the same time put ourselves in the position where we are the number one, um, you know, source of uh, information as a result. That's that's a good thing uh, for them. But it's made it a lot harder for advertisers because now they're spending money, but their money isn't being as wisely allocated as it was before. And so you have to have some sort of attribution tracking that can tell you that my ad spend is doing what it said it's doing because otherwise you're just throwing money into the wind and um it's really really critical and i see like why it would be so valuable um in the e-com world like we service more um the uh businesses that are looking to um you know to to serve more customers and um versus the e-com which is really about um you know a lot of product management and making sure that the right products in front of the right person and that you are able to, um, you know, move product quickly as possible. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating problem. And what are your thoughts on that? Like what, what are your thoughts as far as the industry and, and, you know, why this has become such a, um, you know, an important topic in the last couple of years. How much time do you have left on the pod? Because this is, this is what I talk about all, all day. Jo- jo- jokes aside, but, I think the the non well actually U.S. too. So U.S. has CCPA, so the the GDPR of the U.S. You have all that GDPR. It's happening outside of the U.S. So Europe, where getting it's an opt in. So any website you go to, you have to choose whether you want to opt in to share your data. I part of me feels like there are some decisions that have been made, U.S. or non-U.S. that. They're made by folks or teams or committees or whatever it might be that are slightly out of touch of how the internet works or how it should work because there are certain clauses in some of these regulations that it just doesn't like it feasibly it won't work. Like the internet has a certain way it functions and some things that are being asked would cause the internet part of the internet just not to work. So slightly maybe there's some out of touch aspects or or visions of what what all of the world of tracking can be. I think there is another part, which is growing malicious actors. So there are a lot of malicious actors that are doing things within tracking that even the site that's installing a tracking script may not know that that other tracker, like the piece of JavaScript that's been installed on the site, they're not, they're not doing. A good example here is Magento, which was an open source e-commerce platform, which I worked on for years before Shopify really exploded. 
Magento had a major, major problem where there were trackers that were scraping credit card information on the checkout because they were in, they were being injected. So the scrapers are being injected from another piece of JavaScript, which that's cross-site scripting and these other things that are some of the browsers that have the control to crack down on those. So that's a, that's the second part where there are just bad actors that are forcing the hand of these bigger regulations or bigger browsers. And then there's there's likely some of the either competitive aspect or financial gain by building walled gardens within their own specific platforms, whether that's within Google or within iOS or whatever it might be. There's likely some competitive advantages to make things harder for the masses that could potentially increase the the presence of, you know, the I'd say the bigger, some of the bigger tech players that they're not going to go out of business if they have a bad couple months of Facebook where uh, others might. So I, I think there's a mix mix of all that happening. Again, bad actors, potentially some competitive play, and then just I would say some policy making that's may not encapsulate for the entire greater good of the internet and technology as a whole. Yeah, I think these open platforms, I, I, they're huge vulnerabilities. Um, we see it with WordPress. We see it with um, a lot of these these sites. And, you know, it's not that open source is, is inherently bad. It's that when a vulnerability is discovered, yeah. it's discovered for the all the open source um, platforms across the board. And so those sites are having, yeah. or those platforms are having to stay up to date yeah. all the time. I actually just um, uh, hung out with one of the... Um, uh, senior executives from Magento this week, actually. Um, he was on, um, uh, yeah, we were on this morning thing together and I was chatting to him a little bit about it and just how interesting it was to be part of that. And uh, they had an explosive growth before um, being acquired by Adobe. And, um, it, it, but it was the same sort of thing. I'd say same position as you, which is like right place, right time, right problem. A lot of people are looking for the solution. And then realizing that the opportunity is actually a lot larger um, than they realized, and um, it's so. So, with what you're um, you're you're doing now, how are you ensuring that the data is, um, you know, without without giving away anything? But like, how are you ensuring that that data is secure, so that when people are um, you know transacting or tracking or attributing that that it's um, essentially um safe and um and private for people yeah so we we operate primarily on shopify so there's there are restrictions in place already so we don't have access to the credit card fields or anything like that we don't store credit card data per se but if we just think conversions that are happening that can can include some customer data like email phone number things like that that are attached to a conversion is there's things that we have to put in place so going through SOC 2 and going through the certifications of simple things like, okay, data in transit is encrypted and you're, uh, there's, there's a host. I don't know if you've gone through SOC 2 in the past, but it's, it's very much a privacy security a protocol to help check the boxes that you're doing things that you need to be doing if you're uh, transferring and processing data. On the, so the GDPR and customer consent side, so we integrate with all of the major players for GDPR. So if our customers need to be GDPR compliant or they need to have cookie policies in place for California or some of the other states that have rolled out their own privacy policies, we integrate with them. So if someone has opted out, then we don't we don't collect the data. So it's it's making sure that we integrate well with those privacy vendors. 
but also follow the guidelines and our platforms that we build on top of our require of us. And then some of that, I would say the third third party or independent auditing that one needs to go through just to validate that our tech stack and our processes are up to standard that many of large organizations will expect out of companies like us. Yeah, no, that, you know, that all makes a lot of, um, again, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you're probably similar to us, like we get audited um, every year by Facebook itself. Um, you know, it, it's the same. It, it, it's, it's really important. I think um, if you are looking to, you, you know, set up a business these days, uh, whether it's on Shopify or not, you, you don't think about all the compliance issues, but that compliance issues is hugely important when you're running a business today and making sure you're, you're kind of complying out of the box by plugging in a tool like Elevar is amazing. It truly is. Um, and then you're getting, you're getting the great attribution built in. Um, you know, I, I, I really do see what you guys are, are building and I think you're just doing such a fantastic job. Um, so just um, a little bit more back on to your, your uh, backstory. So you, so you, how did, how did Elevar start? Um, so is you and a founder, another founder? Yeah. So there were three of us when we started and Elevar started just like most other businesses do. You are likely working somewhere else, doing something else. You see a problem that can be, at least my mind is like, okay, this is a problem that could be automated. So it was data analysis, like the manual pulling of analytics data and trying to slice and dice it. It was very manual, time-consuming, et cetera. So the concept was, okay, let's figure out a way to automate that so we, so our customers can spend 80% of the time thinking about strategy and optimization versus 80% of the time on pulling data and analyzing it. And that was really the core. That was the core initial concept of problem, very manual. Can it be automated? Yes. How do we automate it? Let's figure it out and test it out and then put it to market and Give feedback and then everything I mentioned previously is just listening to customers, really working hard over many years to define product market fit, which never ends. Product market fit is something that you always need to be striving for product market fit. So it's continuing to stay close to customers, to the market, seeing the future, living in the future. And then how did you meet your your uh, fellow co-founders? Yeah, so friend, friends are here in Charleston. So it was, again, Nate, who I mentioned in the beginning, was the first person who he worked with a bunch of e-commerce uh, stores. It was, hey, Nate, sit down and click this button. I want to, uh, I want to see your reaction. Uh, but it, yeah, it was, it was personal network, personal network here in Charleston and just uh, keeping close ties as we go along. Our, our, you know, whether it's separate paths or same path, but I still have uh, several folks that I've worked with in previous careers at Elevar today as well. And so are you guys, are you all part of it today? Um, are you still together? Yeah, so Nate, Nate still, he's fairly, I'll say more back office, legal operations, accounting, things like that. He's not in the day-to-day Elevar other than helping with the things and doing the things that uh, you know a normal CEO or, or team just doesn't want to spend their time on. So it's, it's been, a, I think from a, Nate's, he's, whatever he he's explains this part of it, I always laugh because... I uh, just, he just, he's a funny, like the you know, funny description of it. So yeah, he's very, very involved, but not in necessarily like the normal day-to-day that, that you'd expect of the founder. He's not in product. He's not in engineering or customer success. That was, uh, you know, two or three years ago. And it's like, all right, we got to 
one of us has to go because we don't, we're not making any money. Like we got to pick a path, like go. And I, you know, it was, it was me. It was really my, uh, my baby. So I'm going to kind of ride my baby and uh, see how far I can take Elevar. Yeah. And then obviously Inc. 5,000, two years running is not bad. Um, so, so then, so yeah, so I was, I was kind of going to ask that a little bit as well, which is, so now that you're building, you know, Elevar, you've got this customer um, that you're really targeting in service. You, you're you're doing a really good job on on the feedback. Plus, you're, I think you're building a very strong brand, and you're you got these great customers. Uh, where do you sort of see yourself, Elevar, going in the next uh, couple of years? Yeah. So uh, my my thought on the future of Elevar is the market that we are in. So there's a concept of blue ocean or red ocean. So blue ocean is yes. the market's very new. There aren't many players in there versus a red ocean Think project management tools like Monday, Asana, Notion, et cetera. Very much a red ocean, a ton of competition. Elevar historically, and partly because we've navigated across different markets over the last five years, but historically I would, I would categorize, categorize our market as more blue ocean than red ocean. Where I see Elevar moving is the market is starting, uh, actually the market is, but the market's pulling us forward and pulling the solutions that we offer out of other competitors or new folks that are coming into the space. So to me, it's it's not actually we're moving to a red ocean per se, but it's three years ago, me talking about server-side tracking or the conversion APIs. Those that were really, really, I would say, uh, advanced in tracking and how they could use that to their advantage in Facebook, they they loved it. They're all about it. The average e-com manager brand, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Doesn't seem I'm not reading anything about it, so I don't need to do anything about it. Now I think it's the okay. I heard that. I know we need to do something different. I know we're losing out tracking. I know the impact it has on my business. So for me, that's the long answer of we have scratched the surface in terms of market potential. And now that the market is maturing, I feel it's the okay. We need to. Um, for some reason, all I think of is a balloon al- analogy of blow the balloon up to like to take take more uh, more space in our market and just uh, continue to to do a lot of what we've been doing, but add some firepower to uh, to do some things like cross platform, other other aspects that we have not uh, have not focused on to date. It's it is a pretty interesting opportunity, you know. Um... The, the Blue Ocean, Red Ocean, that was a great book. Um, it was actually recommended to me first by um, Dave Crisco, who is the uh, original founder of uh, New Horizon, which was the company that then turned into Club Penguin. You might have heard oh, yeah, of, yeah. Um, you know, like Lane Merrifield and um, and Lance uh, Preeb. They, so, so Dave Crisco is the original founder, and he, um, uh, yeah, so he recommended that book. And it was, it's been a really great um, book for us. You know, when we first started Street Text, we were this library of ad funnels, right? Like you could uh, launch campaigns quickly and easily to uh, to attract customers. And it was, you know, it was it was so new, it was almost too new, right? I yeah. remember in 2014 when we launched this, we're like, um, you, we didn't even know what category we were. And yeah. that's because we were like creating this new category. And the uh, it was a lot of fun. Like it was, it was really, really cool. But remember, we would sit around and we'd be like, "Why is nobody else doing this? Why is nobody else doing this?" Well, fast forward to twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the world has changed. Um, yeah. 
and uh, and we're definitely, I'd say, we're we're playing well into the um, Orange Ocean, Red Ocean. Um, yeah. There's there's a lot of companies that have uh, essentially seen this as an effective strategy, and they're uh, they're they're also doing it. And so, what we ended up building um, is it, same thing, kind of similar process to you, which is we're looking at like you know we're always like we're always kind of thinking okay how do we make whatever the problem is that we have um how do we solve it in a way that that makes things better how do we make it easier for our customer and and being that we really are an ad platform so it's like really a platform design for for launching ads managing ads optimizing those ads um we we realized that remarketing was something that um it, it just isn't done very effectively on Facebook and so we've created this whole remarketing platform. And then once again, um, all of a sudden you're back in that space where you're like, there's nobody else doing it. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of remarketing platforms out there, but there's nobody that's doing it this way. And so it's, it's funny because even on LinkedIn, they're like, Hey, who are like your two closest competitors? Cause putting the product out on LinkedIn. And you're like, there's, there's like literally nobody that does this. There's nobody that allows you to, um, you know, sync your audiences automatically to Facebook and, and all the things that we do um, through, through the remarketing. And, um, and it's funny when you, when, when you, yeah, so the blue ocean strategy, I think is really important. It's like, you always got to, I think as long as you're, you're serving your customer and you're keeping the ear close, like what you were describing, you're always going to put yourself in the blue ocean um, naturally. Like it's just, it's going to happen. But then the other side of it is, um, I don't know if you heard the talk by the Wistia guy. Uh, he, his his whole concept, which was, they, like it's easy to underestimate the market that you're in. It's easy to underestimate the size of the space. And so the, the part that I always struggle with is like, sometimes I want to out-innovate, but just to realize that the space that you're in is still growing and it's growing quite yeah. quickly. And yeah. so to really make sure that, that the, the comp, like the, you know, the value you've created is now capitalizing on that value essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. The markets the market is, uh, not always bigger than you expected or think it. I think I've fallen into that trap in my past of thinking, nah, the market's pretty small and that's not there yet. So it's, even today, it's a good reminder to realize like, that's the market market potential is much bigger than what we think. Oh, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. Like think, okay, there's like uh, 10 plus million businesses advertising at any given second. Um, every single one of those businesses need to track their data. Um, <laughs> like 99%, 99.999%, unless they're using Elevar, don't have yeah. great data, right? They yeah. don't have great insight into what's happening. And uh, yeah, so so think how many people are waking up at this very moment thinking to themselves, like, how do we solve this problem? And they're going to their CMO and their CMO is scratching their head and they're not sure. And yeah. so- um, it's, it, it's a very big problem. And yeah. so I, I, yeah, I, I think about that all the time. It's just like how big the opportunity really is. Yeah. 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 And ex- execution. Yeah. Execution is where, uh, where the magic is at. If you can out execute. Yes, totally. So, um, as we, as we we're wrapping up here, uh, you know, being conscientious of the time, your time, I just want to say thank you, man. I really appreciate this. This is this is really um, I love chatting to you. 
what would be something um yeah likewise yeah yeah it's, it's so good um so what would be a piece of advice uh that you would if you if you could go back in time and meet yourself 20 years ago what would be something that you would um tell yourself then uh that you that you you know from the years that you've learned today a couple a couple of thoughts off the top of my head so if i were, were to go back 20 years so 20 i would tell myself if you can focus and execute from ages of age of 20 to 30 on finding a problem, reading, getting mentors, doing, I feel like all the things I've been doing 30 to 40, the, I would set myself up for a life that I don't even know is, is possible or as I could even fathom. So I think that's one is just realizing that life is long. Like if 20, if most from 2025, they want to do X, Y, and Z and, Probably not think about work too much, just have fun. But man, you can really get ahead if you you uh, zing or zag when everyone else is doing their thing. Uh, yeah, I think that would be one one piece of advice of just uh, have the discipline uh, and just focus for that first decade, the twenty to thirty, like post school post school decade. The I'd say the other the other one that goes along with that that I think a lot about today, especially is. I'm, I'm 41 and interact with others that are in their 20s and 30s. Man, stuff just doesn't happen overnight. And I, I feel like the there's more of that expectation of I do something for six months or a year and then everything's going to happen for me or happen to me. But it, it really is the successes. They're just bricks stacked up over days, weeks, months, years. So it, it's it's you got to think in decades, not in weeks or months. And I think that would be the other piece of advice I would tell myself is just if you start a company, don't expect you to have you know a unicorn in a year and have all these accolades. Maybe in ten years, if you get really lucky and you are persistent and disciplined, but things don't happen in months; they happen in years or decades. Yes, uh, that great quote by is it Steve Jobs? Every every overnight success story has a has a ten year backstory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this is Brad. I just want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This has been great. I'm sure it's been really interesting for a lot of people. And, you know, I, and do like, I like it. Like it's, it's interesting when you share your story because it's, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting journey and business is a yeah. journey for, for everyone listening. And as you probably know, because you're part of it and, um, and it's the little things that happen along the way that end up making the, um, the incredible, yeah. Um, you know, the, the incredible platter that ends up being our plate uh, later in life. And we get a look yep. at that and just say, wow, and what a journey. What a, what a fun ride this has been. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. man. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it.